0: Hello and welcome to The Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Well, welcome to our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're Working our way uh, through that and uh, we're, uh, present we're just looking at the Beatitudes. And so I want to read a few verses from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 3 through to verse 8. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, in one way or another, the first four Beatitudes express our dependence upon God and the, the rest of them show the outworking of that dependence. If we kind of step back for a minute and reflect on all the Beatitudes together, we can see that those who in poverty of spirit recognise the need of mercy are led to show mercy to others. Those who mourn over their sin are led to purity of heart. Those who are meek uh, always seek to make peace. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are never unwilling to pay the price of being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Mercy is a core theme within the Bible. From start to finish, the Bible tells us in a variety of ways that God, in His great mercy, does not give humans what they deserve. Rather, He gives them what they do not deserve. That is to say, forgiveness for sins. He gives His mercy to them. Consequently, those who love God and seek to live righteously will, as recipients of divine mercy, naturally be merciful to others in return. Uh, Our culture is so different from that of the Greco-Roman world that we miss the profound and radical nature of this beatitude. Mercy was not an admirable or sought-after virtue in the ancient world. One Roman philosopher called it a disease of the soul, Uh, One preacher says of it that uh, for the Romans it was the supreme sign of weakness. Mercy for them was a sign that you didn't have what it takes to be a real man, especially a real Roman. The Romans glorified courage, strict justice, firm discipline and above all absolute power. The look down on mercy because mercy to them was weakness and weakness was despised above all other human limitations. The Jews weren't inclined towards mercy either. In fact, to many of Jesus' audience, mercy wasn't a prized virtue for them either, just as much as it wasn't one for the Romans. Their culture was very much an eye for an eye kind of culture. At the very best, it was acceptable to be merciful to those who had shown mercy to you. But the idea of being merciful to someone who had harmed you in some way uh, or offended you in some way was certainly not on the cards. Jesus' audience were probably shocked or surprised by this statement but his challenge to the established wisdom would continue on throughout the sermon perhaps most especially in chapter 5 verse 43 where Jesus states You've heard it was said love your neighbour and hate your enemy but I tell you to love your enemies. So what exactly does Jesus mean in this beatitude? It would be very easy to kind of spiritualise it and as though showing mercy were some inner attitude of heart and mind towards another person. And there's no doubt that that's a perfectly reasonable way to interpret the saying. For throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus highlights the way that inner convictions and attitudes lead to actions and God's very concerned about our attitudes. However, it's also true to say that much more is meant here than just an inner disposition of heart and mind. The word that's translated here as merciful means to be generous in doing deeds of deliverance. So mercy is not just an inner conviction, though that is where it starts. It's also an outward action that delivers a person from a particular need or bondage. Clarence Jordan notes that in calling us to be merciful, Jesus isn't thinking about a cold, condescending kind of mercy such as one in power might extend to a victim in return for gratitude or service. It's a warm and compassionate, tender uh, kind of mercy that never seeks to barter. By merciful, he says, Jesus means those who have an attitude of such compassion towards all people that they want to share gladly all that they have with one another and with the world. If they have any money, they don't give until it hurts. They give till it's gone. When Jesus walked down the road and the blind and crippled called out to him, have mercy on me, they didn't mean uh, let me off lightly or forgive me. But rather what uh, the blind and the crippled were saying was, heal me, deliver me from my affliction. In Matthew 6 and 2, a word from the same root word as mercy is translated as giving alms to the poor. So mercy is effectively compassion in action. It's helpful to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is largely based on Isaiah 61 and that Jesus quoted Isaiah more than any other prophet. In Isaiah, there's a, a real emphasis on God's compassion as a motivation for delivering justice that focuses on rescuing people from their situation, from their need. In fact, as Glenn Stassen notes, Isaiah 58 and verses 67 specifically mentions freeing the oppressed, giving bread to the hungry, providing hospitality to the homeless poor and covering the naked. I think we have the wrong idea Not only about what mercy is, but what the response to it might be. Jesus is, of course, our supreme example in all things, but especially an example of mercy. He reached out to heal the sick, even lepers. He restored the blind and the crippled and the deaf. He even gave new life to the dead. And on top of that, he befriended the outcasts. He even was a friend of tax collectors, prostitutes, adulterers, and the ceremonially unclean. And he offered them forgiveness and mercy and inclusion in the community of faith. And yet the response of the Pharisees and the religious leaders was one of hostility uh, and persecution. The Gospel of John chapter 8 begins with the story of a woman caught in adultery whom they drag before Jesus to see if he'll agree to what the law and tradition demands by stoning her to death. Her guilt is not in doubt. She was caught in the act. But the self-righteous types who want to trap Jesus into disobeying their law are just really, don't care about this woman at all. To them, she's just a pawn in their game. And Jesus confounded their merciless hypocrisy by telling them that whoever uh, was without sin amongst them should cast the first stone. One by one, they all drop their stones and walk away. And Jesus says to the woman that he doesn't condemn her either and he encourages her to go and sin no more. And if you jump to the end of the chapter, you find that it's his opponents, perhaps some who were in that very crowd that day, who now pick up stones to throw at him. His mercy had no impact on their hard-hearted mercilessness. So the call to be merciful is one uh, in which there is a real challenge for us uh, in in that it's not an easy thing to do in the first instance. But actually the challenge is that we, we are called to be merciful in the face of potential rejection and persecution as a result of showing that mercy. Yet Jesus says here that it's only the merciful that will receive mercy. He most likely has in mind mercy from God on the last day at the end of all things. As Charles Price notes, the condition to receiving from God is giving. By that he doesn't mean that we can earn or deserve God's mercy. It's not a condition to becoming a Christian, he says, but it's a condition for maintaining a wholesome growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and is in fact a result of receiving the mercy and forgiveness of the Lord in the first place. To not be merciful is to suggest that you do not understand the mercy that you yourself have been given. As the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 3 and 13, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. The religious leaders who were so keen to stone Jesus couldn't receive God's mercy. Michael Wilkins suggests that they had become so self-satisfied with their own religious attainments that they no longer believe that they have any need of mercy from anyone else, not even God. The point here is simply that those who receive mercy will demonstrate it. The merciful are not those who are occasionally disposed to be merciful, but those who are habitually merciful those for whom showing mercy is the unconscious outflow of their inner life. Again, Jesus is our primary example. From the moment he appears in the pages of Scripture, he shows mercy again and again and is no greater example of mercy than his self-sacrifice for us on the cross in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, is one that's quite easily open to misinterpretation. It's often been thought to mean that Jesus' concern here is with inner purity and not with outward actions. But that approach is at best inaccurate and fails to take into account his teaching as a whole, and especially the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount in particular. Glenn Stassen gets to the heart of this saying when he translates it as "'Joyful are those who seek God's will in all that they are and do.' for they will see God. That's really, in a, in a nutshell, what this beatitude is getting at. Jesus isn't speaking here about some inner spirituality, but rather he is emphasising, as Stassen puts it, the unity of inward roots and outward fruits. Some biblical scholars have noted that purity of heart must involve integrity, a correspondence between outward action and inward thought, a lack of duplicity, singleness of intention and the desire to please God above all else. More succinctly, punitive heart is to will one thing, God's will, with all of one's being and doing. So this beatitude presents a very clear challenge to followers of Jesus today because every study on the issue has demonstrated that there's a wide gap between uh, what Christians say that they believe And how Christians actually behave in everyday life. When Jesus speaks of the pure in heart, he's not referring to sinless perfection. For then no one would see God because no one's pure in heart. Paul puts that one totally to bed in Romans 3.23 when he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus is speaking about purity or holiness, but not holiness as an inner spiritual experience, but rather as a holistic way of being that encompasses the whole self and consequently all of life. It's important to note that no one is made righteous before God as a result of their own holiness or their own righteousness or their own uh, inner or spiritual purity or whatever. We are saved through the holy righteousness of Christ, who alone lived a sinless and perfect life and gave his life as an offering for ours. As the Apostle Paul puts it, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The basic teaching on this issue is that Christians are positionally holy. We're being made holy and pure and righteous in Christ. That God looks on us because we have come to Christ in faith and received mercy from God. That God now looks on us as though we were pure and holy and righteous. So our standing before God, you might say, is such that he considers us as those who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ and made holy and pure in him. But the flip side of that is that we are not holy and pure in practice. In Romans, the Apostle Paul speaks very frankly about the struggle between our new nature in Christ and our own sinful nature. He says himself, I I do the thing I don't want to, I don't do the thing that I do want to. So the challenge of the Christian life, the challenge of being a follower of Jesus, is to become in practice who we are already in Christ. This is the gap between our beliefs and our behaviour. And our task, our calling uh, in, in maturing as disciples, is to narrow that gap through obedience to Christ's commands. The reality of that gap often causes people, of course, to doubt the reality of their salvation. And whilst it's not a bad thing to ask questions of our faith and practice, in fact, it is necessary to do that. We must anchor, however, our struggle in the reality that our salvation is about what Christ has done, not what we have done, or indeed not what we have failed to do. Because no amount of holy living can save us or make us right with God. Only Jesus can do that, and he has done that at the cross. But holy living must be our response to what he has done on our behalf. The common understanding of of grace, of God's grace, is that it is unmerited favour. In respect of God, it means that God's mercy is offered despite our inability to earn it or to deserve it or be worthy of it in any way. In Romans 3.23, Paul says we've all sinned and fallen short. But in the very next verse, he says that all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The reformers were very keen to emphasise this and so qualified it by saying that salvation was by grace alone. But of course, uh, the grace that is alone doesn't stay alone. Whilst it's fundamentally correct to say that we're saved by by grace alone, it's not the whole story of the meaning of grace. In Paul's time, the word translated as grace wasn't actually a religious word at all. It had no particular theological meaning. As John Barclay notes, it was a word that was in common usage in in the culture. It had three general meanings. Firstly, it referred to what was charming or attractive. Secondly, it meant a gift, or favour, or benefit, or the attitude that accompanied a gift. And lastly, it meant the return of gratitude, or thanksgiving, to the one who had given the gift. And Paul uses all three of those meanings throughout 2 Corinthians 8-9, to for example. However, in Paul's time, whilst a, a grace gift could be regarded as unmerited favour, It would normally be from someone um, higher up the social strata, uh, more powerful politically, um, more uh, um, financially wealthy, all of that. Someone that you were not in the same class as. Um, And so there's nothing you could do to deserve or merit the favour of that person. And so uh, the grace gift could be um, regarded as unmerited favour, but it also carried certain social expectations. Brackley writes that grace was the giving of a benefit or favour which generally elicits some form of reciprocal return that is necessary for the continuation of the relationship. In other words, whilst the recipient of the gift was unworthy or undeserving of the gift or had done nothing to earn it, could do nothing to earn it, so that it was given free and unmerited, Nonetheless, the recipient of the gift was expected to offer something in return, an acknowledgement of the gift, an acknowledgement of this unmerited favour. In Paul's understanding of grace, moral and social transformation were not optional extras, but were the necessary expression of God's grace at work in our lives. To be saved is to have pledged your allegiance to Jesus Christ as King in response to his saving grace that activates the mercy of God in our lives. For that allegiance to be in any way meaningful, we must avoid what Bonhoeffer famously called cheap grace, by which he meant grace that has without obligation, without sacrifice, grace that makes no demands on our lives. That's cheap grace. Our aim is to become in reality what we already are in Christ, pure in heart. There needs to be a reciprocal response from us to the grace of God, which is free and unmerited, though costly. We are not in reality or the reality of our everyday lives as pure as we should be. However, a response to the grace of God that saves us should be to live obediently so that the gap between what we believe, who we are in Christ and who we are in practice day by day, that gap is narrowed until the day when, as Jude puts it in his letter, we will be presented before the presence of God, blameless and without fault. Thank you for listening.